Hebrews chapter number 6. I've had a conversation on my mind all week. Well, I say all week, ever since uh, Friday when I had it. I counseled with a dear lady that was struggling with assurance of her salvation. And we discussed some things, discussed the, the power of God, His ability, His promises. And ever since then, this passage has not escaped my mind. I, I'll confess to you, it, it had sort of been kicking around, but when you got a head as big as mine and a brain as small as mine, there's a lot of stuff kicks around in that head, you know. And, but uh, th- this passage had been kind of kicking around, but it really confirmed in my heart with the conversations that I had, and the Lord used those to help guide me and direct me. And I want to preach to you tonight on a topic that I believe will help you, and I believe it'll help us to understand it tonight. Let's begin reading Hebrews chapter 6, verse number 13. The Word of God says, For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing, I will bless thee, and multiplying, I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's read verses 18 and 19 once more. That by two immutable things, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would guide and organize my words and thoughts tonight in a way that would be effectual for the hearing of your people. Lord, I pray that you'd make plain these truths. God, encourage us in the power and majesty of your word, Lord, and in the blessedness and person of your Son, Jesus Christ. Do in hearts what only you can do. We ask it now in Christ's name. Amen. I'm interested in the phrase that's used in verse 19 where the Word of God says, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Can I say to you tonight that God has chosen His words very carefully? To hear some men tell it, it would seem as though God is very cavalier about the use of words. Oh, it could be this word or it could be that word. We can swap it out, we can tweak it, we can change it. But the Word of God says that man shall live by every word of God. That tells me that every word of God is important tonight. So God has not chosen His wording in a cavalier way, but in a very purposed and distinct way. The Word of God speaks of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ as being the anchor of the soul. Now, can I say to you tonight, and it struck me very, very, uh, very clearly as I was talking to that person, 
how many people struggle with assurance of their salvation. There was a time in my life when I struggled with assurance of my salvation as a teenage boy. Probably most folks in this room would testify that there has at least been some point in which they have struggled to some degree with the assurance of their salvation. And in talking to this person, the Lord laid this thought on my heart. Can I give it to you just very quickly before we preach? The saving is something that God does. Don't you believe that? God does that. God saves us. We don't help Him save us. We don't, we don't give Him a hand in saving us. We don't try to get better so He can save us. We have nothing to do with the saving. We're dead, and we must be regenerated. And only God can do that. The Bible says, "...and you hath he quickened," means to be made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Salvation is a matter that is holy of God. But can I say to you tonight, now you hear me out before you get cross with me, that assurance of salvation is something that is holy of us. You say, preacher, what do you mean by that? I mean this, God has already assured our salvation if we put our faith in Him. If we have asked, uh, if we've done what God's asked of us, confessed herself a sinner, asked Christ to forgive us and save us. If we've come to Calvary, our salvation is settled. And there's nothing that can unsettle it. And yet so many who are eternally saved are perpetually bothered by the thought of their salvation. Could it be that the assurance of our salvation has less to do with what God should do because God's already done it? and more to do with us believing that God will do what He said He would do. I don't say that to fuss at you or to beat up on you. The last thing somebody that's struggling with assurance of their salvation needs is someone to come along and beat up on them. I don't say it for that reason, but merely to give you hope and encouragement that though the devil would cause you to doubt, though he may be able to dislodge your security down here, he can't do a thing about your security up there. And so in the passage before us, we have very strong language used. The Bible says that our hope can be an anchor. Uh, Can I say to you tonight that every believer needs to strive to have the assurance of their salvation? Anybody that tells you you can't know, the only thing that that tells you is that they don't know. Because you can know that you're saved. Not because you never mess up. Not because you never uh, have a uh, temptation come your way. Of course, we know that we mess up, that we fail, and that we're frail, and that we have temptation. But because we've done what God's asked us to do, and God promised us if we'd come to Him, He'd save us. And so we can have this assurance. The Bible says concerning this hope that it has three functions. I just want to very quickly give you by way of introduction. I want us to notice first off the service of this anchor. It's speaking of... That hope that we have, based upon the promise of God, based upon the nature and the person of God, that God will do and perform what He has said unto us. And I see three things, three basic reasons. If you've ever done any kind of boating, I think you'll understand what I mean when I give you these. Three things that an anchor does, three purposes it serves, that hope also serves in the life of the believer. And this is why it's so vital that we get our salvation nailed down. First off, I would say that an anchor is for the purpose to keep you from destruction. 
Isn't that true? Have you ever been out on a boat before? Isn't that the purpose of an anchor? Uh, you know, in this passage before us, I think the picture is very clear. That uh, life is very much like a stormy sea. And wouldn't you have to agree that our life is like a stormy sea? It may be calm waters right now, and you don't appreciate that anchor. Uh, but there will come a time when the wind will begin to blow, and the waves will begin to roll, and you'll reach for something substantial that can anchor your life. When the captain is out upon the ship and he gets close to the shoals or close to any of the rocky areas, or maybe he's even out in the midst of the ocean, but the wind grows contrary to him, part of the reason that he has an anchor is so that there can be some foundation point, some grounding point to which he can be settled, so that no matter what goes on around him, that which is the very essence of his vessel can remain unmoved. I'll tell you why we need to have our the security of our salvation nailed down, our assurance nailed down. We need it nailed down for the difficult times in life. Let me tell you something. I'm just telling you what the devil's going to do, so don't get upset at me. If you've lived any amount of time, you know he operates this way. Just sure as anything, when tough times come, and they will come to your life, the devil will sneak up beside you and say, the reason you have problems is because you've never been saved. He said it to me. I bet he's probably said it to you. Times when, you know, and sometimes the storm is around us and sometimes the storm's within us. Sometimes the storm is our circumstances, but sometimes the storm is our feelings and our emotions. Sometimes it's our mind and our nerves. Sometimes we feel as though we're about to come unglued, not from the outside, but from the inside. And in those moments of uh, intellectual and emotional assault, it's important for us to have something, uh, something that has nothing to do with our intellect, something that has nothing to do with our emotions, something that has nothing to do with what we think or how we feel, but is a fact in our lives that God will do what He promised that we've been to Calvary, that He promised us if we'd come to Him and ask Him for forgiveness, He'd save us. We need that point in our lives. I'm not talking about a date. I'm not talking about remembering the sermon preached. But let me tell you something. Every single person that's born again, they may not know the date. They may not know the day of the week. They may not know what the sermon was that was preached. And they might not know the color tie that the preacher wore. But they will remember a time and a point in which they confess themselves a sinner and ask Christ to save them. We all need this because of destruction. Let me tell you something. It's very easy. A lot of Christians, you can lose your mind trying to win this, uh, trying to fight this spiritual battle if you've not got the captain in sight and if you've not got your salvation nailed down. I believe an anchor is given to keep us from destruction. Let me give you a second thing. I believe that an anchor is, an anchor is given to keep us from drifting. Now, some of you say, well, d- duh. <laughs> Maybe you wouldn't say that, I don't know. But uh, of course it's to keep you from drifting. But I don't mean drifting into the rocks, I mean drifting backwards. Oftentimes when a boat captain has been making headway and he's been uh, floating and trying to sail against the current, with the wind against the current, what have you, and he's made some progress and there might be some changes in what the current does, a lot of times if he has to rest, he'll drop the anchor to ensure that the ground that he's gained will not be lost. And I say that we must understand the truth of our salvation and we must gain the assurance of our salvation so that we don't go backwards in our Christian walk. So that we don't lose ground that we fought so hard for and that the Lord's given us victory in. I'm just telling you, it's a very disheartening thing 
when the devil begins to assault you in that way. And many Christians, you know what they do? They throw their hands up and they say, well, I'll just live how I want to. I'll just live how I want to. My life seems to have gone wrong. Everything uh, has gone down in the gutter and I just give up. I think sometimes we, we take too lightly what God's done in our lives. I'm serious now. We take too lightly the things that God's given. Some of you, and I'd say most of you, you're here on a Sunday night. Most of you, you've gotten to some degree some victory concerning being in the house of God. Most of you. And let me tell you something. It's easy when you've been that way for a lot of years to take for granted, take for granted how easy it is to slip out of church and to be out and to stay out and how hard it is to get back in. We need to have great spiritual footing and great spiritual grounding so that we understand I am a child of God, I belong to the Lord. And can I say this? If you belong to the Lord, you belong in the Lord's house. (laughs) If you belong to the Lord, you belong in the Lord's house. And so it's vital that we understand uh, the hope that we can have in Jesus Christ, not only for salvation, by the way. It's not just, did God receive me? It's, will God ever cast me off? There's lots of folks that believe God received them, but they also believe God would just as quickly cast them off when they sin. Can I say I'm glad to you? uh, I'm glad to say tonight that God didn't save me because I'd never sin again. God knew I'd sin. God didn't save me upon the contingency that I never mess up, that I never fail. Uh, The Bible says if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. That tells me two things. That tells me, one, we're going to sin, and two, it tells me when we do, He's still our Father because we have an advocate with him. So I think we ought to have this thing settled to keep from drifting. But let me give you a third thing. I think we ought to have our salvation settled to keep from discomfort. Oftentimes, the captain, when he gets to a resting place, to a place where he wants some rest, some comfort, and some peace, he would drop anchor simply to keep his ship from going back and forth. Can I say to you tonight that you'll never, you'll never know the peace which passeth all understanding till you get this matter settled. You'll never know it. I've counseled with, with untold numbers of people about this very... You'd be amazed how many folks I counsel with consistently that are struggling with their salvation. I, I've, I've ta- In the past week, I've talked to two or three that have questions about their salvation. I'm talking... Uh, people. I, I'm not talking about the person walking up and down the street. I'm not talking about the fella pushing a buggy full of, uh, full of aluminum cans. I'm talking about folks that go to the house of God, folks that you'd look at and say, Oh, I know that there's that I've sat down and talked with over the past week that have questions. People that are living without a moment's rest consistently in terror when they close their eyes at night that they'll leave this world and wake up in hell. Let me tell you something. It's, It's great peace when you come to terms with the fact that you're saved and you're eternally saved. No matter what else. You know why that captain puts that anchor down? Because he knows that he's going to be in the same place when he wakes up that he was when he laid down. And could I say that uh, whether in this world uh, or whether to be absent from the body and to be present with Christ, can I say that it's it's, it's a great thing to know that God's going to be with me no matter what happens in my life. 
If everything goes wrong tomorrow, God will still be with me. I know this. You say, how do I know this? Well, notice the second thing tonight. We see not only the service of the anchor, but I want you to notice the source of the anchor. Where did this anchor come from? Very interesting passage is referenced. Uh, in, uh, it's from Genesis chapter 22. Uh, after the uh, offering up of Isaac, and the angel makes this statement. In fact, I'll read it to you. I've got it marked here. Uh, in Genesis chapter number 22, verse number 16, the Word of God says, or verse 15 says, And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time, and said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord. For because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemy." The Bible references this in Hebrews chapter number 6. It's speaking about God's promise to us. Look again in verse number 13 of Hebrews chapter 6. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strength. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise. Now, what promise is he speaking of? He's not just speaking of the physical promise that God had made Abraham. Now, God had made Abraham some earthly temporal promises. In fact, there are kind of two veins in which God would reference the promises that he made Abraham. Sometimes he'd look at Abraham and he'd say, Abraham, I want you to look at the sand of the seashore. And he'd say, thy seed is going to be greater than that. Just like that, Abraham worked cannot be numbered. And that referred to the earthly people of the Jews. I believe God has an earthly people. I believe God still has an earthly people. I believe no matter who's in the White House, God has an earthly people. I believe no matter what happens with the European Union, that God still has an earthly people. And I believe, according to the Word of God, that when the entire world rises up to slaughter and extinguish the Jews, that God will still have a people. And he will protect them. God does have an earthly people. But then there's a second aspect to this that's reflected in the book of Galatians, where Paul says that not all those of Abraham are of Abraham. Not all of Abraham's natural seed are part of his spiritual seed. There was a second way God would talk to Abraham. He'd say, Abraham, I want you to look towards the stars in the heavens. And he'd say, that's exactly how your seed is going to be. So there is an earthly promise and there is a heavenly promise. When God made this promise to Abraham, the book of Galatians says he made it to faithful Abraham. And those that are of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. So I believe the promise that's being reflected here is not the promise given to the earthly Jews. Now, that's just as unchangeable. That's just as certain. It's just as settled. But I don't believe that's what the writer of Hebrews is referencing. Because he then turns towards us and says there in verse number 17, wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise. And he's speaking not to these Hebrews as Hebrews necessarily, but to these Hebrews. You know, the purpose of the book of Hebrews, don't you? The book of Hebrews was written to show how that Christ was the priest that God was always looking for and how that the priesthood of Melchizedek was superlative to that of Aaron. And so he's doing what? He's writing to saved Jews. 
You're not just writing to Jews. He's writing to saved Jews. You say, what does that matter, preacher? It matters because I believe that he's also talking to us as saved Gentiles when he speaks of the heirs of his promise. And what does he say? Moiling more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things, let me talk about those, two immutable things. Let me say that the first thing is the agreement or the promise that God made. Do you know it's enough for God to say it once? But sometimes God says it twice. That ought to tell you something. You remember in John 5, 24, and this is a, a, a verse that I use often in, in witnessing and leading people to the Lord and then also in, in uh, counseling people about assurance of their salvation. Christ said this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me uh, hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, uh, but is passed from death unto life. Now, the Lord could have said one verily. You know what the word verily means? It means truly, truly. It means this is true. In fact, he didn't have to say any verilies. It still would have been true. Or he could have said one verily, and we would have said, oh, pay attention. That's Now, he's speaking something that's important, but he said verily, verily. For God to say it once, that's enough. Can I say to you that God has promised you and I that if we would come in simple faith, in simple faith, do you know that God didn't save you because of the words that you spoke? Say, so how do you know that, preacher? Well, because we find some of them, like uh, the uh, like Paul says about his time uh, on the Damascus Road, that he uh, looked towards heaven and uh, he simply said, Lord, what would thou have me to do? That was sufficient. We find the publican beat upon his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We find that the thief on the cross said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. It's not so much the words you say. That's the great danger in this crowd that wants to just walk people through a prayer. Just walk them through a prayer. Now, I'm not, a, I'm not opposed. I've had folks look at me before and say, well, I don't know how to pray. And you know what I've usually told them? I've usually said, talk to me, except you're talking to God. It's just the same. Just talk to Him. Speak from your own heart. And it, it, it scares me when some folks treat salvation like it's a matter of abracadabra or open sesame. Just repeat a few words. I'm not opposed to helping a sinner understand what prayer is. Don't misunderstand me. Uh, but I, I, I'm afraid sometimes that's just vain words. That's just uh, sounding brass and tinkling cymbals when there's no sincerity of the heart behind it. It's not about the words you prayed. That's not why God saved you. God didn't save you because of the promises you made Him. You say, how do you know that, preacher? Because chances are, if you're like me, you haven't kept them. I'm sure you may have made promises when you... Got saved. You may say, Lord, if you'll save me, I promise I'll serve you. And the truth is, if you're like me, there's been times in your life you've not kept that promise. You may have said, Lord, if you'll save me, I'll live for you. Well, what does that mean to live for him? Uh, most of us live for him a little bit, but how many of us live for him totally? God didn't save you because of the promises that you made. Why did God save you? God saved you because he promised you that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's why God saved you. God has made a promise that any that come to Him, He will in no wise cast out. So we see the agreement. Let me give you a passage just to go along with it. It encourages me. Because, listen, this deals not only with hope in Christ as our salvation, but hope in Christ as our strength and sufficiency. Even if our salvation settled, it's still good to know that we're anchored to the rock of ages. Amen? And let me read this to you in Romans chapter 8, verse 35. It says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, God said that about you, and He said it about me. Amen? We see the agreement, but then notice, secondly, we see the oath. It would have been enough for God to have said it once. It would have been enough for God to have said it twice. But God did so much more than that. You see, this promise that was given to Abraham, I think sometimes we read everything to do with Abraham and we think oh, every bit of it just has to do with the Jews in the Middle East. And a lot of it does, don't misunderstand me. But understand that the entire premise of the book, you got to forgive me, I just got through teaching 13 weeks on the book of Galatians, so I got a lot stored up, amen? So you might hear it from time to time. But uh, one of the things that I'm struck by in uh, reading the book of Galatians is the fact that grace predates law. Well, I know that grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. I'm aware of that, but he's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And how was Abraham justified? The Bible says he believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And the book of Galatians teaches us that the law which came over 400 years after cannot disannul the covenant that God made with Abraham. How did God make that covenant with Abraham? Uh, He promised, and when he promised, he wasn't promising Abraham. Oh, no, he was making a promise with himself. That's what the book of Genesis chapter 15 teaches us. We touched on it, but I'll just, I'll just touch on it again. In Genesis chapter 15, there is a covenant that's made. Do you remember? And actually, Genesis 15 is the first time that the Bible ever speaks of righteousness being accounted unto Abraham. And you know what the Bible says? In that time, it was common if you made a covenant. And you know, a covenant is between two people. A promise is one person to another, but a covenant is an agreement between two people. It's sort of like a contract, you know. And at that time, when they would make a covenant, it was customary that they would take the sacrifice, they would cut the sacrifice in two, they would lay it parallel to each other, and the two folks making the covenant with each other, they'd lock arms, they'd lock hands, and they'd walk from one end of that covenant, to, or one end of that sacrifice to the other end, and that was them officially and legally entering into this binding legal agreement that they would keep both sides of their covenant. The Bible says that God had Abraham do that very thing. He had Abraham take the sacrifice, flay it in two, lay it on either side. He had Abraham get everything ready. The fowls started to gather in the air, and Abraham drove them off. But somewhere between Abraham's effort, oh, listen, somewhere between Abraham's effort and Abraham's justification, you know what God did? God came along and he put Abraham into a deep sleep. And the Bible says when Abraham woke up and he looked, he saw a furnace and a lamp going side by side from one end to that sacrifice to the other. You say, what did God do? God said, Abraham, you get everything ready. Then I'm going to put you to sleep and I'm going to make a covenant with myself. And I'm going to bring you into this covenant. So that Abraham didn't have to agree to anything. 
Abraham didn't have to make any promises. Abraham, just by the grace of God, was brought into a promise that God made to himself. Listen to me tonight. God has promised you that if you come to him, put your faith in him, he'd save you and that he'd never leave you nor forsake you. It's not got a thing to do with the words you pray or the promises that you make. It ain't got anything to do with anything that you've done or ever will do. God has made a promise to himself and drug you into it by grace. By grace. Men verily swear by the greater. And an oath for confirmation is an end of all strife. We see that today. My wife got called up for jury duty the other day. And uh, she, she got out of it. I, mean, I don't know if she cried or something. That's, they, they let women out for that. No. But uh, she got called up for jury duty. And you know, I've been thinking about that ever since then. Oftentimes, if you've ever been in jury duty, when they swear them in, it may change now. Who knows what they'll swear him in now. But for a lot of years, they put their hand on the Bible. And they'd say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Then what would they say? They swear by the greater. They'd swear by the greater. Who's God going to swear by? God says, I'll swear by myself. And two promises, two, two oaths are spoken of here. One explicitly and one implicitly. One is the oath that he made with Abraham where he said, I swear by myself that in blessing I will bless thee and in multiplying I will multiply thee. You know, that deals with God's assurance of our salvation. He's made a promise if we'd put our faith in him, he'd save us. But then there's a second one. Can I just touch on it real quick and then we'll move on? Listen to what it says in Psalms 110. Actually, let me, let me read to you verse 20 of Hebrews 6. You're right there. The Bible says, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Psalms 110 and verse 4 says, The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. See, there's two oaths being spoken of here. One is the oath that God's made concerning our salvation. If you'll come to me, I'll save you. But the second is the oath that God's made concerning our advocate, the person of Christ Jesus. Can I say to you tonight that not only do I know that I'm never going to be cast into hell, I also know that I'm never going to be forsaken. It's not just that I'll never be cast out. It's that I'm never going to be let down. It's not just that I won't be let in. It's that I've already got somebody that's on the inside for me. And the Lord sworn that Christ would be forever a priest after the order of Melchizedek. We see the agreement and the oath, but then where do these things come together? Look again in our text at what it says. Look down at verse number 18. That by two immutable things. Now, we don't use that word very often in modern language, but you know what it means. Two unchangeable things. Listen to me. God didn't have... God didn't have to make the promise, and God didn't have to make the oath. But God thinks it's so important that you have your salvation nailed down that He made both, that by two immutable things, two things that can never change, two things, listen to me, that are grounded in the rock of ages, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope. You know how I know that I'm saved tonight? It's not because I feel saved. Or sometimes I feel saved and then there's other times I don't. I don't think that I'm saved because I'm so sanctified. And if you knew me, you'd know that's true. I know tonight that I'm saved 
Because God made me a promise. God made me a promise and that by two immutable things in the which it was impossible for God to lie. Do you understand the, the, the ramifications if God broke His Word? So how do you know you're saved tonight, preacher? I know I'm saved tonight because the sky's blue. You say, whoa, what do you mean because the sky's blue? Well, you see, the same Word that tells me I'm saved is the same Word that was used to put the firmament in the sky. I know that I'm saved tonight because up is up and down is down. How do you know, preacher? Because it's the same Word that saved me that put the laws of gravity into place. I know that I'm saved tonight because the stars are in the sky, because the moon is in the sky, because the sun is in the sky. And listen, my salvation is more sure than the rising of the sun tomorrow because there'll come a day when the Lamb will be the light of that city and I'll still be saved. Because that same Word that promised to save me is the same Word that flung creation out into existence. If God was to be proved a liar concerning my salvation, the very fabric of the universe would unravel because there would be no basis of foundation for truth. I see the immutability of His counsel. I know that God cannot lie. Can I give you one final thing and I'll hush? We've seen the service of the anchor. We've seen the source of the anchor. But let's talk for just a minute about the strength of this anchor. You can have an anchor... But if it ain't strong enough, it ain't going to help you. You can have an anchor in the right place. But if it's not strong enough, it ain't going to help you. I see three things about this anchor that encourage me tonight about its strength. Notice, first off, the power of this anchor. Verse number 19, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. That tells me that it's both unchanging and unmovable. Do you understand tonight that the very cord that tethers you to Jesus Christ cannot be broken by anything in or out of this world? God says about this hope that it's sure and steadfast. I'm thankful tonight to understand uh, that it's, number one, that it's unchanging. That Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I may grow in my salvation, but the terms of my salvation, they don't ever change because they're settled on Calvary. There's never going to come a time when God is going to come along and say, well, I didn't know you was going to live that way. I didn't know you was going to do that. Well, I didn't know you was going to mess up this way. God knew who and what I was when He saved me. That's what I want people to understand tonight. There's so many folks that think God's going to get mad and cast them into hell because they mess up. Listen, you ignorant billy goat, don't you understand that God knew what you were when He saved you? God knew what you were. God knew your worst. God knew you were worse than you thought you were. And as bad as you were, I promise you, in the holy eyes of God, you were even worse. God already knew what you were. Salvation, the terms of it, are never changing. But then secondly, I want you to notice that they're never moving. They're never moving. My eternal destination can never move. It's been settled in the person of Jesus Christ. It's steadfast. You know what that word steadfast is? That's a, that's a sweet Elizabethan English Bible word for stubborn. That's what that is. Steadfast, stubborn. Our salvation is a stubborn thing. 
Do you know if you've ever got it, even if you don't want it no more, you ain't going to get rid of it. That's the way it is. I told someone this past week, I said, what kind of life does God have? And they always, you know, everybody thinks it's like, everybody when they're talking to a preacher, they, they their mind goes back and they're standing on the carpet in the principal's office and every question's loaded and they're in trouble. I don't know why that is, but uh, I asked them, I said, what kind of life does God have? And after they sat there and figured out I wasn't trying to trick them, they said, well, I don't know, God has everlasting life. I said, did he ever have a beginning? They said, no. I said, is he ever going to have an ending? They said, no. I said, where did you get your life? They said, well, I got it from God. I said, then the only kind you've got is eternal life. That's the only kind he's got. Isn't that simple tonight? Isn't that simple? You know what it is that causes... Satan tries to drop, whether it's through false teachers, whether it's through false Bibles, whether it's through, uh, through uh, false emotions, the devil tries to draw us away from the simplicity that is in Jesus Christ. You know what I had someone tell me this past week with tears in their eyes? They looked at me and they said, is it really that simple? I said, oh yes, it's really that simple. I see the power of this anchor. But then I see the place of this anchor. Look what it says, verse 19. And which entereth into that within the veil. You know, an anchor is only as good as the place that it is anchored. You can have an anchor, but if the anchor is in the boat, listen to listen to me. I'm about to say something deeper than I even planned on when I opened my mouth. Do you know that the anchor won't help you if it's in the boat? You know that your hope, if you put your hope in yourself, you're not going to be anchored. That's where I fear for a lot of folks. That's where I fear for a lot of folks that you ask them, have you ever been saved? And you know what they say? They say, oh, I go to church. They say, oh, I go to church. Say, they got the anchor in the boat with them. Have you ever been saved? Oh, yeah, yeah. I went to, you know, I, 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 give, I give money to charity. They got the anchor in the boat with them. Have you ever been saved? Oh, yes, I've been baptized. They got the anchor in the boat with them. That's where their hope has been placed in themselves. But those of us that have put our faith in Jesus Christ, the book of Colossians chapter 3 says, For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. You're tethered to a heavenly place. You're tethered to a place that though the heathen rage, it won't affect that within the veil. Though we may mess up, it won't affect that within the veil. You see, within the veil was the place of atonement anyway. God knows you're going to mess up. We're anchored to the rock of ages, seated with the ancient of days upon the right hand of the throne of God the Father. We are anchored in a place that all of the devices and strength and all of the imaginations of man can never shake and can never unsettle. Listen, we're anchored to a place that when this world is on fire, we'll still stand. That's where my life is hid. My life is hid with Christ in God. My life's not hid in a church house. My life's not hid in the baptistry. My life's not hid in the membership rolls. My life's not hid in my bank account. My life is not hid in my ancestry. My life is hid with Christ in God. And to get a hold of my soul for damnation, you'll have to get a hold of Him first. Uh, To sink me, you're going to have to sink Him tonight. Because that's the place where my hope has been anchored. But then I notice a third thing. I see not only the power of this anchor and the place of this anchor, 
But I see the person of this anchor. The Bible says in verse 20, whether the forerunner is entered. You know what a forerunner is? It's not not Toyota. You know what a forerunner is? A forerunner, literally that word means the scout. That's what that word means, a scout. A person that's sent ahead to secure an area. That's what a scout is, isn't it? A person that's sent ahead to secure an area and to secure access to it. The scout's supposed to go in and let us know that the way's been made and everything's clear and just come on in. He's the forerunner. The Bible says whether the forerunner runner is, enter, is for us entered, even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You know, it's really not that important that you've got a hold of your anchor. It's really more important that your anchor's got a hold of you. You're not tied to the anchor to keep it from floating away. You're tied to the anchor to keep you from floating away. And do you understand that we have seated at the right hand of the Father an advocate, an intercessor, and a mediator for you and I? I fear that a lot of confusion is brought about in this day that we live in because people acknowledge in an academic sense the historical accuracy of the biblical account without ever accepting the person of Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's why we got so many folks that have a head knowledge but no heart knowledge. You ask them if they believe in Jesus, when they say yes, they mean it like, like they believe in Napoleon or Caesar. Yes, he, he lived, he existed. They even believe that he died for their sins. They even believe that he's sufficient. But there's never been a time when they've gone to him. Do you understand tonight? It's his heaven. It's his grace. It's his salvation. If you won't go to him, you won't get it. If you've never been to him, you've not got it tonight. You've got to go to him to be saved. Not just acknowledge it. Not just raise a hand. You've got to go to Him. Confess yourself a sinner. And ask Him to forgive you and save you. You see, it's, it's not just adherence to the principles of a martyr long dead. No, no, friend. It's putting our faith in a Savior, now living, powerful, and able to save. You say, how do you know, preacher, that you're saved tonight? How do you know that you're saved tonight? Because my anchor is seated at the right hand of the Father. I'm not waiting to get a place in heaven. I've got a place in heaven. And in a sense, could I say to you tonight that I'm not waiting to get there. I'm already there. The book of Ephesians says we're seated together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I don't say this to make you feel that way, because your feelings isn't what it's about. What I've spoken to you tonight is truth. Whether you like it or not, accept it or not, whether you feel like it or not, it's true. So here's the great and grand question I have to you. Have you ever been to Calvary? Have you ever called upon Christ, His finished work, to forgive you and save you? If you've not tonight, then you have no reason to believe you're saved. If you've never been to, if you've never confessed yourself a sinner, called upon Christ, and I, listen, I could use a hundred thousand different ways of saying it, but you know what I mean tonight. Have you ever asked Christ to forgive you and save? If you've not, you don't have a reason to believe that you're saved. 
I w- if you've never done that, I wouldn't want you going out of here thinking you're saved because you're not saved if you've never asked Christ to forgive you and save you. But let me tell you something. If you have, and if you were sincere in doing it, and I find that most folks struggling with assurance of their salvation, most of them are sincere. You see, the hypocrites aren't interested in being upset and tore up about it. The hypocrites don't care one way or the other. Most folks that that are struggling with assurance, most of them are sincere. If you meant business with God, He meant business with you. And you ought to rejoice tonight that it's settled forever. 